one of my great fears in life is to die of suffocation. And it's an unhealthy fear, I'll be quite honest with you. <laughs> I guess it started as a kid watching the videos of, you know, Unsolved Mysteries or 911 or whatever the crime documentary or show was, and someone drowning or being suffocated. So when I come across the documentary Last Breath, I thought, hmm, I'm not sure I'm up for the challenge. Um, here's a story about a, a man who gets stuck on the bottom of the ocean without oxygen for 30-plus minutes. And it's actually 40 minutes without heat or the other things that are normally required to keep someone alive at the bottom of the ocean. And yet, yet he survives. That's our show today, which is Chris Lemons, who is um, the star, I guess you could say, or as he puts it, the, the person who may not should not be the star, but is the star of the documentary Last Breath, which is on Netflix. Um, so be sure to stay around for that. But first, let's talk about our sponsor, which is Bluehost. I say it every time. It feels like every day when I'm talking to business people around the country, around the world, you need your own website. You need it. You just got to have it. Don't count on social media. That is a terrible way to put your financial future in the hands of platforms you cannot control. You have to have your own domain. I use Bluehost. You should too. Link below, ryanraysenior.com slash hosting. That's ryanraysenior.com slash hosting. And with that being said, let's get into our interview with Chris from The Last Breath. Well, Chris, uh, it's an honor to have you on the, the show today. Uh, how are you doing? Mine. Thank you very much indeed for uh, inviting me along. Yeah, um, I, I'm good. I was just saying to you two seconds ago, that was good until I got a text message um, five minutes ago saying I, I've just tested positive for coronavirus. So that was a bit of a blow, but um, yeah, I feel okay. So other than that, all, all is well. Yeah, yeah. So we had it going around our house about, um, I guess, two weeks ago. And so uh, we're, we're, we're out the woods now and, and all is well. So hopefully you and your family um, get recovered pretty quickly. So let's get into the, the I guess let's be at the table. What is it? I'm, I'm assuming you still do this job. What is the job that you do, or at least you did, that um, um, that led to this documentary being made about you? Yeah. Um, so I'm uh, what's called a, a saturation diver. So I'm a, a commercial diver, um, which obviously just means diving for, for money. But um, um, I do a very specific form of that, which is known as uh, saturation diving, which enables um, diving very deep down to the to the sea floor, um, up to you know potentially up to about um, three hundred meters or nine hundred feet deep, if you like. Um, but it's a yeah, it's a strange sort of existence, really, where um, in order to to facilitate diving deep, and, the, and you know the, the main problems with that are the. Uh, the decompression times involved if you were to sort of you know if you, if you imagine a normal scuba diver when he's diving he he pays a penalty with uh, uh for that or for the for the depth and the time that he spends down there um through the absorption of inert gases and so on so he he would normally need to take sort of uh, little stops on his way back to the surface uh, to allow those gases to pass safely out of his system before they expand too quickly and you know block arteries and veins and things like that and the, and the flow of oxygen to the brain um, but when you dive very very deep um those sort of decompression times become, um, you know, penal to the point where they can be several days. So, uh, you know, if, if you dive, you know, I dive quite regularly in the North Sea where I work to, to say about, um, uh, you know, 350, 400 feet. The decompression time from that depth, if you're working for six hours, which is what we do, would be around about four or five days. So obviously that's not viable on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, basis either 
uh, either commercially or uh, or indeed for um, you know to ask a human being to, to hang around in the water for four or five days so um, saturation diving is basically the solution to that in that um, what we do is we live um, within chambers so decompression chambers aboard a boat a ship um, and on day one we we step into those chambers we uh, close the doors and the uh, the system the chambers are pressurized down to an equivalent working depth so if for example we were to be working at say 300 feet the um, the chambers would be pressurized down to 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 you know a little bit short of that say about 250 feet um, and you would then live under those conditions so you live under pressure at all times um, uh, and each day a diving bell locks onto the top of that uh, habitat that system you climb up into it in teams of three uh, close the door you're separated from the system and lowered down to the to the seabed or to say to 250 feet um, and then when you open the door at 250 feet under the water because you've got an equivalence of pressure you've already got that pressure inside which is the same as the pressure outside then the, the water doesn't come in so you have a dry environment you don your your uh, diving equipment you drop the the last few feet down to the seabed work away for six hours and then uh, return to the return to the diving bell after six hours come back to the to the ship are uh, locked back onto that chamber um you drop back down into the system have a you know have a cup of coffee and uh, some food uh, shower something to eat read a book uh, go to sleep and then you repeat the next day and uh, you sort of do that continuously for for say 23 days before stopping diving and then decompressing very very slowly uh, in the safety of the um of the system of the chambers in a dry environment so what you're essentially doing is one very very long dive because at no point during that process until or until the very end do you do you have to decompress so yeah it's a very um sort of expensive and uh, convoluted way of uh, solving quite a simple problem but um yeah that in it in a nutshell probably rambled on a bit there apologies oh, but that in a nutshell is, is what it is really yeah, <laughs> yeah so let, me, let me kind of recap make sure right you guys <laughs> like when you get on the ship day one they put you inside the tank and then you start getting compressed, I guess, is maybe the way to put it. Yeah, yeah no, that's exactly it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then when you reach your destination out in the North Sea, they lower you down in this, it's not a submarine, it's a whatever, I can't, the bell or whatever you guys call it. Um, yeah. And you you go down there for your day's work, which is about six hours on the sea floor. You come back up and then they bring you back up to the ship at night. So you're in the ship every night uh, or all the time when you're not working. I didn't realize that. So it's So you're only out in the water, in the bale, in the water uh, during working hours, I guess. Yeah, that's it. It's a bit of a common misconception. I think people will think you sort of live on the seabed or something like that. But yeah, you, you basically you live on the ship and the ship moves around all the time from job to job. But here in the UK or in UK waters, we're restricted legally to spending 28 days at a time living in those chambers. So that's what we do normally, 20, 28 days living in a sort of two metre by two metre uh, capsule really you know so there's very very little room and there, there's normally 12 of us in there four teams of three each sort of allocated to do six hours on a seabed so the boat can can work 24 hours a day yeah so it's a funny a funny existence yeah and so what what exactly are you guys what's on the bottom of the ocean floor that requires us to send humans down there for 20 days at a time um so i work um almost exclusively in the oil and oil and gas industry um I think people always picture that as being, uh, you know, certainly in the offshore world, um, you know, big, uh, big oil rigs and things like that. And we, we do work on them. But the vast majority of the the infrastructure, if you like, in the oil and gas industry is actually on the seabed, uh, particularly in our part of the world. Um, so you have uh, wellheads and 
pipelines, manifolds, electronics, hydraulics, you know, the whole, the whole infrastructure that is required to, uh, you know, pull the, pull the oil or the gas from the, um, from the, the, the sea floor and return it to, uh, to, to rigs and then to shore. So all of that infrastructure requires either installing or inspecting or maintaining, repairing, and then eventually something we're doing more and more of at the moment, um, which is decommissioning or removing it. So yeah, you sort of involved with the lifespan of that. And how much work, I mean, um, for those who haven't seen the documentary or are familiar with this, I'll, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes again. Um, but how much work can you really get done because you're, you know, you're in a big old suit and you got this big umbilical cord attached to you. I mean, is it, is it um, a little bit of work done in a day or is it actually a pretty, pretty, good, pretty good amount? Well, it depends on the day, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, no, it's surprising. I mean, the... Again, people sort of picture us in this sort of space suit, but it's uh, we wear a pretty loose fitting wetsuit, really. There's nothing particularly sophisticated about it. Um, we get all uh, pumped down to, to us. Um, you know, it's a bit like being in a jacuzzi. It's quite pleasant, really. So, yeah, I mean, we uh, we work, um, as I said, the majority of what I do, we do work sort of mid-water where we might be wearing a pair of fins, but most of the time I wear a pair of uh, big yellow fisherman's wellies really and i wander around on the seabed negatively buoyant so you you sort of are able to to get quite a lot done really um obviously everything i mean diving is really just like a taxi to our job you know the skill is really uh is being able to do exactly what as you mentioned there is to be able to be productive and efficient under the water that sort of probably separates the um you know the better divers from the from the weaker ones i guess um is how efficient you can be down there and how you can adapt to working in that in that environment but um yeah i mean it's basically a construction site really so um um yeah we we get done what we have to get done but it, yeah there's no doubt it can be a little bit slower than it might be uh, on the surface there's no doubt about that and what got you interested in this i've been scuba diving one time in my life um so i've done kind of the depressing like you got to come up kind of slow but you know we're down 25 feet or whatever it was you know it was of no real depth you could see everything um you know uh there was an instructor there there was a rope to climb back to the ship it was completely different than what you're doing i guess you have the rope uh with the, that you're attached to but i can't imagine <laughs> being at the bottom of the ocean it's pitch black dark i mean you have a light on i don't know how uh, is visibility always always the same? Can you see better on some days than others? Because it looks on the, from the documentary like you can't see hardly anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the, your biggest enemy, or certainly my biggest enemy when you're diving is the visibility. It's very rarely uh, it's very rarely good to put it that way. It's um, again that's a big skill has been able to negotiate and work in in you know nil to to very poor visibility. That's for sure. Um, but it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I got into it. Uh, I'd love to tell you a, a nice romantic tale about how I fell into it, but uh, there are there are definitely people who I work with who who were like you, was you know scuba divers, um, uh, or you know loved Jacques Cousteau and all that kind of thing, and and grew up with it and found a way to make their their passion their vocation, if you like. Um, but my story is not quite as lovely as that. It's a, it's a bit more. Um, uh, I was sort of young. I was maybe uh, you know twenty, twenty one, and I, I didn't really know what to do with my life. Is, is the truth, and um, uh, a little bit lost. And a, a friend's father um, just found me a summer job, really, you know, just to earn a bit of pocket money while I figured things out on that. But it was on the back deck of one of these um, these ships, a, a dive support vessel, a DSV. So I kind of got to see it firsthand, and um, you know, the, I, I think probably I'd love to tell you it was because it looked very romantic. But the truth is, they probably turned up on the quayside in 
much flashier cars than I had, you know, and I wanted, I wanted a bit of that, I think, you know, at the beginning. Um, but yeah, something I've, le- I've learned to love over the years. Um, for me, it is, it is a functional thing. It's just a job, a job that I do really. Um, and it's also, um, you know, to touch on scuba diving again, you know, people, you'll find often find commercial divers and I might burst the bubble a bit here who sort of try and make out that um you know depth is everything and they're, they're very brave for going down there and so on and so forth but you know to my mind scuba diving is is probably a more dangerous pastime than what than what I do which is going to sound a bit ridiculous when we come on to what I'm, we're about to talk about but uh, you know as a general principle the the biggest dangers in diving are you know um are your ascent to the surface aren't they so controlling your descent and your ascent and your buoyancy and things like that that's where injuries really occur in diving or running out of gas is another one and those things can't really happen in commercial diving because we're sort of attached to an umbilical cord which gives us essentially an, an, an infinite supply of gas our descent and our ascent is completely controlled you know i work on a boat with 110 people who are there uh, just to put two divers on the seabed every day you know so it's a it's a, uh, it's a very very despite the inherent dangers it's very very tightly regulated and sort of i think anyway a very safe place to work obviously if something goes wrong you're you're brutally exposed as we're about to go on to but um yeah i, I don't let any diver tell you they're they're braver than a scuba diver because i've got i've got more respect for for decent scuba divers than i have for many commercial divers yeah yeah and that's an interesting point i hadn't thought about that because when you're when you're scuba diving you know if you I guess, um, you know, make a mistake, you know, the, 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 uh, the dangers are, are pretty, pretty severe potentially because, um, you don't have unlimited oxygen, you know, in, in a heating suit and, and all this stuff that, that kind of keeps you stable. And you can't, um, uh, if I'm understanding how you, you guys work, like if you go back to your bail, you know, your, your, your ascent isn't really, a problem because it's already been pressure uh, the pressure has been stable and all that stuff so yeah that, that is an interesting perspective that um from a certain perspective it is safer but listen you're in the dark man you're down there in the dark yeah. okay i gotta <laughs> ask like what's the craziest thing you've seen on the bottom of the ocean or is there nothing down there yeah yeah did i get that cross that question all the time and again it feels always slightly dis- disappointed like a disappointing answer you know um yeah, again, I've got colleagues who sort of raise submarines. I've got a friend of mine who was involved with the raising of the Kursk, you know, and uh, they've uh, they've found fighter fighter jets on the seabed out in the North Sea, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, the, the embarrassing truth is, yeah, certainly where I work in the North, you know, the oil industry of the North Sea principally, um, you, you don't see much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a barren wasteland <laughs> around where we work. So the most glamorous thing I tend to find are old shopping trolleys that have been thrown off a rig or a bit of scaffolding or a bed. You know, it's uh, it's very rarely exciting. In the past, I used to work around the world a lot more. So I worked, um, you know, I used to work out in the Middle East and off the west coast of Africa and, and Brazil and places like that. And there you would see a lot of exciting uh, fish obviously you know and sharks and uh, you know all the rest of it but um yeah in terms of actual uh where i work now it's pretty inanimate to be honest i'm sorry <laughs> well we'll we're, i will send you some ideas of things to, to say that you saw when we got on she's like a like a kraken um a loch ness monster we'll come up with some good crazy stuff because you know who's gonna deny yeah. i'm not brave enough to go down there but uh but no well oh, you're right i've got to I've got to up my game there. You're absolutely right. So yeah, any, any suggestions, you know, gratefully received. Thank you. <laughs> well, truth be told, it's probably best not to see anything down there, right? Because you are, while you are um, in a pretty contained environment, um, if things do go wrong, 
you're 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 likely to die. And so I guess it is probably best that it is kind of a, a banal oh, there. Exactly. I think I think the fact that I've got my eyes shut ninety percent of the times probably hurts as well, helps as well. <laughs> so, oh well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so let's set the table for what we've been talking about. Oh, oh yeah, I did want to have one more question before we got into this. Um, hmm. um and what is it when you guys are working on the bottom of the ocean floor, um, apart from what we're talking about with the ship and what went wrong, let's assume that everything's working perfectly and there's a big storm raging on top of the the, the sea. Does it impact you guys at all? Does it mess does the bottom of the ocean respond in kind when the tops you know, getting blown all around? Yeah, it really depends on the depth, actually. Um, so the deeper you go, the less, the, the, I mean, it sounds obvious, but yeah, the deeper you go, the less you're sort of affected. You're certainly, the less you're affected by the the motion of the ocean, if you like. Um, but also in terms of uh, visibility and things like that. So when you're working in shallow water and you have a storm, it will it will um, stir up the bottom and you can't see anything for days on end. But um, yeah, as you sort of mentioned, we, we're attached to the, the ship and the, the diving bell by an umbilical so that's flexible and and so once you're down there when you get out of the bell and you're we have like a holding stage underneath the bell uh if the weather's really bad up above you can feel that going up and down and your ears are popping and that kind of thing but as soon as you jump off uh, and down to the seabed then that sort of motion is is um tempered by the by the umbilical so yeah you feel almost nothing really yeah it's it's quite it's actually quite a peaceful ethereal environment to work in a lot of the time um you know the only time you might notice that the weather's really bad is when something come down comes down on the crane and it's uh you know it's um moving up and down by 10 meters when you're trying to take it off so <laughs> that can be awkward you know it's maybe time to call it at that point but yeah generally it's um yeah we're sort of isolated from that a little bit you're absolutely right okay yeah so i yeah that, I, 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 that makes sense okay so let's set the, the stage here for what we've been kind of skirting around but i wanted to get the a lay of the land um yeah. So it's you and two other gentlemen are in the bell. Um, you're down for, I don't know which day of work this is uh, for your 20 something days, but you were down. Um, you and um, I don't remember the other guy's name, but you're, you and him, there's two of you down on the floor. One of you got one of in the bell. Um, and on the top of the ocean where the ship is, there's a storm of brewing and the ship has some kind of guidance system, a GPS system that's supposed to keep the motors um right where you are so you don't pull obviously if you think about it you've got the ship which has got a tether to the bell the bell's got the umbilical to the diver so the ship drags then everything else follows and so the ship's supposed to stay on top um that system fails and according to the documentary it's like the only time in the history of man it fails the ship starts getting blown around and you sir i like i just cringe thinking about this you sir are caught up in in this on one of these oil and gas manifolds and the the cord breaks like okay so yeah i mean yeah. did i get that right first off yeah that's, that's great it's, it's, it's lovely when people have done a bit of homework and actually understand it you've, you've, you've explained it very very well there yeah okay. yeah you're absolutely right so the sort of the the boat has what we call a, a dynamic positioning system which um because exactly as you put it the the divers in order to facilitate working in one place you know on the seabed with all the wind and the weather above you um the boat has a computer system which um uses gps and beacons on the seabed and uh, things called taut wires which sort of weighted wires uh, you know the angle of inclination fed back to the ship is all information that's fed back to a centralized computer which then counteracts all of that by instructing various propellers and thrusters around the boat to yeah to, to counteract it so um it with a you know really astonishing degree of accuracy really 
um, the boat is able to hold position to within, you know, maybe one or two or three meters of a geographical position on the seabed in, in pretty severe weather. So uh, that, that was that. Yeah. And, and exactly as you said, so I was down on the seabed that day with uh, my colleague, whose name uh, is Dave Uassa, uh, who was in the water with me. And then we have a, we always have a third a third diver who stays in the diving bell every day. His name was, his was Duncan Alcock. Um, but yeah, we were just having a pretty normal, normal day at the office working inside a manifold, which is a structure um, about the size of a big house, maybe, you know, sort of 20 metres long and 10 metres high, say. Um, and we were taking out a section of, of pipe work and um, pretty, pretty standard work. It was it was nice visibility actually that day, pretty very much a, a normal day at the office. Um, but yeah, then they, they suffered um, a sort of catastrophic failure of that dynamic position and system exactly as he described um all the screens on the bridge blacked out it was um sort of 11 o'clock at night or something like that, or 10 o'clock at night but it was it was completely dark outside so they had no uh point of reference if you like we were working in open water there weren't any rigs or anything nearby for them to sort of orientate themselves with so they had a a real problem on the the bridge and the boat just went dead in the water and and started being blown away at, at, at you know pretty significant speed um so dave and i were given a bit of warning we didn't really know what was going on but we were told in no uncertain terms to, to make our way back to the diving bell there's all sorts of alarms going off in our ears and um yeah to cut a long story short um my umbilical which is exactly what it sounds like it's a sort of bringer of life of of gas of hot water of electronics uh to, to power a light and a, and a camera on my hat and uh and an earpiece so i can hear everything that's going on up, up upstairs you know um got caught on a, a metal outcrop essentially and um and i ended up being basically the anchor on the end of a you know an eight thousand ton boat moving away at five or six knots and there was only ever going to be one winner in that situation so um yeah uh it sort of stretched the umbilical out uh, and eventually it it snapped and, and broke and, and uh, abandoned me on the seabed i guess yeah when did you know you were in trouble um it's probably about then. I mean, I think we, when we sort of first heard there was a problem, there's problems all the time. We hear alarms all the time. It's not unusual. We didn't panic. We sort of made our way out. Um, and we started climbing the structure. It wasn't, nothing felt like a big deal, really. You know, um, you could sense there was, a, there was urgency. And uh, we have a dive supervisor who's, who's talking to us in our ear all the time. I didn't really know what the problem was, but you could sense this wasn't a drill. This was something, you know, more serious than that. But uh, we certainly weren't panicking or frightened. And um, it, but it was literally, I think, at the point where the umbilical sort of it hooked around. It took, it took a little loop around this metal outcrop, this you know, the transponder bucket. It was, um, uh, and it happened so incredibly quickly that I I sort of dropped down to try and free it, and I saw instantaneously really that it was it was holding fast and I wasn't going to be able to do anything about it um so yeah I think at that point it became a very very serious situation for me um but you don't think about these things too much I don't think in the moment um it, it was you know you're too busy trying to rectify rectify things and uh panicking wildly if truth be told to try and free yourself and um I can remember thinking I had two major problems at that point but one of them wasn't that the umbilical was going to break it was more that it was it was sort of pulling me inexorably towards this gap where you know gone the umbilical had passed through a sort of two inch gap and it was slipping around towards it and i thought well if this keeps going i'm going to get pulled through the, that gap with it you know like a you know like being pulled through a cheese grater almost which wasn't going to be a nice a nice ending 
uh, and also my legs were sort of splaying and being crushed against the side of this structure. And I thought, you know, I thought they were going to snap and break and I was thinking this is going to be very, very painful. So it, it, it was frightening, definitely. Um, but I don't think I really appreciated the, you know, sort of the potential magnitude, I think, of what was happening um, until the umbilical itself broke. Um, and at that point, um i was sort of cut off from everything there was uh, you know i've got somebody in my ear all the time got light got heating uh and suddenly i was left with nothing and i i sort of tumbled the i'd climbed up to the top of the structure at that point and i i sort of uh, tumbled back down to the seabed uh landing on my back like a sort of upturned turtle almost uh, uh, and found myself in this most complete and utter darkness really you know abs the most absolute darkness i think i've ever known really and um uh no hot water obviously so i was getting very very cold very very quickly uh and in complete and utter silence um but even then i don't don't think i sort of worried too much about anything other than trying to save myself as we all would you know you, you, your sort of fight or flight i guess instinct kicks in and um i don't think there was a lot of thinking going on to be honest uh, i just remember thinking i need to go upwards because upwards is where the diving bell was i needed to find where that was so um, I sort of stumbled. I was very lucky, really. There, there was it was completely black, and I was I can only been two or three meters away from this, you know, this structure the size of a house, but I couldn't see it, um, and I could very easily have wandered out into no man's land if you like. So I sort of very luckily took a couple of steps and bumped into the structure, found a way to climb to the top, um, and looked up when I got to the top, very much expecting to see the diving bell somewhere above me and you know Dave or Duncan on their way to come and rescue me I don't know why I just sort of assumed that um so if there was a moment that was probably it when I looked up and there was nothing you know there was nothing not a speck of light in the in a sea above me and um um I realized that you know doing a bit of sludgy and my maths is not fantastic at the best of times to be honest but uh in that environment my mind was slightly porridge like and uh but I managed to do a little bit of maths and worked out that I you know, at best I could have had, you know, four or five or six minutes left of gas. We I haven't really explained properly, but you know, we, we have a, we carry a, a, a bailout, so an emergency supply of gas on our back, um, which we never anticipate having to use, but I was able to turn that on when my umbilical was severed. So that, that takes you from a world of an infinite, an, an infinite supply, like we, we talked about to a very, you know, very much a finite supply. And of that depth, it doesn't really last very long. So I knew having fallen down and being in full panic mode and climbing back up and so on that I couldn't have more than sort of five or six minutes left and even if Dave had been right there waiting to take me back to the diving bell it would have been a pretty close run thing but with with nobody there um you know I realized pretty quickly that my my chances of of getting out of that certainly seemed um pretty much non-existent so that that was that was that was a big moment I think when I realized you know this was potentially going to be by the end of it you know so so uh, maybe re this kind of reset here for a half a second. How cold is it down there again at the bottom of the ocean floor? I think we think about that time of year. You're probably talking about um, it was September, North Sea, so about about four degrees perhaps. Um, but it's a slightly strange thing because I, I always feel like I have this very loose Celsius. Beg your pardon? You about Celsius, right? So, oh, but yeah, sorry, Celsius. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, I got like... my math. I got a two <laughs> No worries. Yeah. No worries. I was like, four degrees. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. He's, he's talking about Celsius. That's, that's fine. Go ahead. I, forget. I did well with my feet earlier, but I forgot with my uh, Fahrenheit. Yeah. 
quick about them. Uh, so what is that? I should know that really. It's two, seven, three. Anyway, very cold anyway. <laughs> Close to freezing. Like, uh, you know, so 38, you know. 39 degrees, something like that, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, you would know about it. You know, you know, either um, if, you, if your hot water gets knocked off or something like that, you know very, very quickly that it's 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 very, very cold. So, uh, as I was saying, I, I just got to, I always feel like I have this lucid recollection of everything that happened. But the, the strange thing is, I don't have any recollection of getting cold at all, uh, which I don't understand. I mean, it either tells you that my my memory of things is not what I think it is. Um, or that you know your brain, your your body, your mind has this incredible way of um, you know shutting down unnecessary uh, senses. I guess you know that wasn't relevant to me. I suppose at the time, and um, yeah, or I just don't have a memory of it. It's strange, but yeah, I would have been hypothermic very quickly, um, but I don't have a memory of it. Right. I would suspect that you're you're full blown adrenaline. You know, you you hear stories of people who are. Um, you know, severely injured, maybe even, you know, people have been shot by a gun and, you know, they're, they're hot, they're, um, their adrenaline is pumping so, so hard that they don't really realize that they're in bad shape until they kind of just stop for half a second. And then um, the, the trauma sets in. So, but you're saying that you didn't experience it ever setting in, you just kind of didn't realize what had happened. And so you, the, the cord snaps, you fall to the bottom of the ocean floor, you, you get up and you, you, find your way through the pitch black dark, 37 degree water, and you traverse this, this manifold. And so uh, I don't know how hard is that? Does it matter with a light, not light? Like, is it something that's pretty easy? You can find your gripping pretty easy or was that a, a difficult task in the dark to, to traverse? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was completely uh, through feel. Um, it was, it was, it was normally there's lots of stuff to clamber over but that particular structure that particular manifold was quite open and uh, modern actually but um you know i was lucky enough to find a hose to sort of climb up but it was yeah it was entirely entirely through feel and I, re I remember getting to the top which was a sort of a grilled you know grating um there's a little bit of current and uh, you know clinging to it sort of almost embarrassingly tight really because i wasn't that worried about about falling off because i know you know, disorienting sense of not not knowing where the edge is and constantly being frightened of falling, if you like. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember sort of crawling, I'm sure very ungainly to sort of a, what I thought was hopefully a sort of central position, you know, uh, ostensibly just to, to increase the chances of the, of the lads finding me at some point, you know. Right. Um, but yeah, then almost assuming a, a fetal position, you know, clinging, clinging to the, clinging to this grating and, you know, looking upwards hoping hoping in you know in hope more than expectation i guess yeah okay and so from their perspective the ship is disoriented i didn't realize it's at night because the documentary looks like it's in the afternoon it's cloudy skies but it's 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 full-blown night okay so it's at night so the ship's gone the captain they were firing up the manual motor trying to steer the ship uh, it's, it's complete chaos um yeah. they eventually get the the system back online and they go back to where they are right um mm -hmm. Now this, and, and they deploy, it's, it's not a, it's not a submarine, it's some kind of submersive uh, vehicle to go down there and, and start looking around from, from, from the outside. It, it's, it's hard to imagine how accurately pinpointed are these manifolds. So like when you get out the bell, do you know, okay, it's 32 steps roughly and I'm gonna hit something or is it like, Hey guys, you know, hundred feet more or less. And so when, when they're coming back to try to save your life, um, what, what, you know, how easy or hard was it for them to find you? Yeah. So in a, in a normal 
normal run of operations uh it's very easy well very easy it's uh we have got a pretty you know pretty pinpoint accuracy we have uh, navigational screens up in dive control on the bridge which give us a um you know uh the the precise layout of everything down there and you can see divers wear beacons and you can see them little dots flashing and moving around on the seabed so it's you know it's easy when you've got uh, all systems online and you know full communication to to negotiate your way around um but that night um we'd obviously we'd lost all of that with all the screens had gone black um uh, and they were reliant purely on the um, the, uh, the beacon that was carrying, and uh, you know, and there was a radar operator on the bridge who was just giving the captain and the, the first officer range and bearing really to try and to try and get back to me, um, because as I said earlier, they had completely black screens and you know no real frame of frame of ref reference at all. The boat had drifted nearly 250 meters away, and um, they they made efforts as you touched upon there to try and take manual control of the vessel um which uh, you know uh, to all intents and purposes failed they were they were unable to do so it was not, not something they never had to do before it was four joysticks you've got two men uh with two you know one hand on each joystick trying to 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 move a boat in you know and even just pointing the boat into the weather proved you know they could just about manage that but you know re bringing it back to my position just wasn't going to happen um they they eventually um, instigated what they call they're, they're a Norwegian crew and they call it the Swedish solution, which we're all familiar with, which is basically turning the computer off and turning it on again. <laughs> and it, uh, as you said, it, it sort of all rebooted and they were able then everything sort of rebooted. They were able to see me on a on a navigational screen and move back to the the position of the manifold. Um, uh, that that was fairly easy for them at that point. But the yeah the 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 reason part you know the big reason that the film got made is that we have so much. Um, uh, you know raw footage or original footage from the night and a big part of that was the fact that while they were 250 meters away the divers are not able to come and get me because their umbilicals are only 50 meters long so they're restricted they, they physically cannot get to me um, but we do carry as you said as uh, what we call a remotely operated vehicle so it's a, a flying camera a flying arm um, which has a very very long tether 300 meter long tether so that was able to to get to me well in advance of them getting the boat back to me so we have that sort of harrowing footage that you see in the in, in the uh, in the film of my sort of prostate prostate body almost uh, lying there and twitching so um they had a visual on me but um you know bringing the boat back to me was a, was was a bit more complicated yeah and so you don't remember seeing the vehicle there right yeah, people often ask that because you know when you if when you get to, if you, you know if you happen to watch it then you it looks like I'm twitching it you know some people have even suggested it looks like I'm waving but I'm definitely not I'm definitely long 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 unconscious at that point um, there's been a lot of debate I've I've spoken at the, sort of the Royal Medical Society in London and all sorts of places and um, you know to try and get some answers and it's very difficult to know um, some people have suggested it's sort of um, an O2 toxicity so high oxygen levels that are causing me to twitch some are suggesting it's high carbon dioxide levels you know or is it just the last vestiges of life I guess you know I, I don't know but um, there's sort of some unnatural movement going on but I'm definitely I definitely have no memory of it and I'm you know I'm pretty confident I'm unconscious I'm unconscious at that point yeah right and so now the task is um, it, it, it's, it's not Going back to the scuba analogy, it's not, hey, let's take him a tank and uh, you know a, a mouthpiece and stick it in his mouth and let him breathe and you know yeah. it, it's we got to get him back to the ship or not the ship the um, the bell we've got to get him back and oh by the way there's two of us down here 
but only one of us can go get him. And like, (laughs) it's a Herculean effort, right? Because you've got to navigate getting off the manifold. Uh, You can't, you know, lose sight of where you're at because, you know, if, if, if for some reason you were to get too far away because he dropped, you get dropped or whatever, um, you might you might dive in because of the time elapsed and the, we're up against the clock. As you mentioned earlier, you've got a reserve tank with only a handful of minutes. Like we, we the, the term we say at least in the U.S. about threading the needle. The needle <laughs> had to be threaded like the first time on this, right? Like there's no, they're talking margin for error. There's none, and yet somehow I'm talking to you today. So tell me how this needle gets threaded. Yeah, that's a great way, again, a great way of putting it, yeah. Um, yeah, again, touch, touch and go back up, you know, I haven't spoken to all these people that, uh, uh, you know, the one thing they do have in, in, in common is that they all say that the margins must have been, you know, almost infinitesimally small, you know, between not just survival, you know, it's not just surviving that seems miraculous, but it's it's surviving without any sort of, you know, uh, well, I would say no brain damage and no one's been brave enough to tell me otherwise, you know, but no obvious brain damage. And, um, you know, so I don't really know is the truth how I survived. I mean, it's, um, it's we, we think probably the film sort of makes a big deal of maybe I had five minutes of reserve gas, but, you know, if you do the maths, it's probably more like about nine minutes. Uh, but it was almost 40, 40 odd minutes before they were able to get me back into the diving bell. But I'm glad you said what you did there, really, which is that, um, you know, it really was a Herculean effort. You know, people are often, you know, as you are today, kind enough to, to talk to me. But the, the, the real heroes in the story really were, were the people who came to get me. And, you know, I, I was very much the, the damsel in distress in this situation in that I just uh, lay there and passed out, really. You know, there's nothing there's nothing particularly heroic about that. About that. Um, but these guys... Um, remained very very calm very very professional um and in you know extraordinarily pressurized and difficult circumstances managed to execute a a rescue as you say i mean just dropping the diving bell they they lowered the diving bell lower than they normally would you know there's the we have a cardinal rule where we don't put the diving bell near any subsea structure because if you catch the bell on something um you know you're going to threaten the entire ship at that point so um they, they, you know, they brought it down really low. And uh, Dave Uasa, who's in the water with me, is a tremendously uh, fit, fit man. Um, he came down and dragged me back. Um, uh, you know, and even, even he's, you know, even despite how fit he is, he said he was, you know, was it was almost beyond him. You know, it took a massive, massive effort with the the bell moving up and down in the weather to drag my sort of heavy, lifeless body back to the diving bell and get my my head inside and. Um, that sort of after all of that had taken place, we, we think it was maybe about 40. We'll never know how long my, my emergency supply lasted because we haven't got that on record. But um, certainly from my umbilical breaking to my my head being in the diving bell is about 42 minutes, I think, um, with a gas supply that can only have lasted about maybe nine, you know. So that's a big discrepancy, obviously. And, um, you know, so we're looking along the lines of, you know, close to 30 minutes with, with nothing to breathe. Um and yet when I put, put my head in the, or they put my head in the, in the diving bell, Duncan ripped my helmet off and gave me a couple of uh, rescue breaths. And uh, apparently I just exhaled quite violently at that point and, and, and started coming, coming around, you know, regain consciousness. I don't really have much of a memory of that, but very slowly regain consciousness to the point where I was able to climb back into the, to the diving bell and sit myself down. So 
yeah, it, it feels miraculous in many, in, in, you know, uh, in many ways. Um, we've got theories as to why I was able to survive that long, but um, you know, definitely nothing, nothing definitive. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you not only are you without oxygen, you're in 37 degree water with no heat, right? So it's 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 a uh, it's uh, there's there's two factors that are really working against you. The cold water alone um, could could kill you. Um, you know, you, you think about. Um, stories of the Titanic, you know, when the, you know, they didn't have a protective suit on like you do, um, but those people died in the water fairly quickly and the water's probably a little colder on that night than it was down there, but it's pretty close. It's still pretty close and you're, you're down there, you've got the suit on, um, you have no heat, no oxygen. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story. And as you say, the documentary does a good job of, there's a shot from inside the bill, you know, where he gives you those, the, the, those, uh, the breath and then, and, and you just kind of come to, and so yeah. you, you they, they, they made, they made, they made us reenact that, by the way, that's, that is me and Duncan reenacting that, which is, which is probably more traumatic than the day itself, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's not the real footage. Ninety percent of the film, the footage in the film is—I've probably just blown that, haven't I? Ninety percent of the footage in the, in the film is real, but yeah, that that little bit, yeah, is a reenactment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, no, it's, it's okay. It's, I, I suspect Sorry, it's most of what happened, but it, it, regardless, um, <laughs> story's true. Right? Hold on, hold on, wait. Let's start from the top here. This is a true story, right? <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. No, no, it is, and that, like I said, that's the reason the film got made. You know, almost all of the footage in the film is is the real thing. You know, it's helmet oh. footage. But there were little there were little parts where we didn't we don't have a camera, and that was one of them. Yeah. So we yeah. we recreated that little bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you talk about the cold water, but it's um, you know, that sounds life threatening. But I, you know, I always felt that that was probably one of the principal reasons why I survived. I mean, the um, you hear stories of kids falling, you know, particularly youngsters falling through ice and things and uh, and almost going into a stasis, you know, into stasis or, you know, hibernation and and surviving for, you know, ridiculous long periods. So I don't know, I always felt that was maybe what had done it, but um, I think I talk about it in the film a little bit that the a lot of it I think has to do with the gases that we breathe. So we, we don't breathe, um, don't breathe air. When we're diving that deep, we breathe uh, uh, what we call heliox, which is a mix of heat, helium and oxygen um, uh, for various reasons. I won't bore you with now, but they, um, you know, that has quite a high, although it's, we're only, I think we're breathing 9% oxygen that night, which sounds obviously much lower than we would breathe on a surface, but um, because of the pressure or the partial pressures on the body, uh, that's actually relatively a higher amount of oxygen than we would be be taking in on the surface and um, my bailout gas was even higher than that so um, effectively I think my tissues were basically saturated with oxygen you know to the point where they were able to survive this this period of time and, and, and not die I guess you know including my brain tissue so yeah I, I think I think that's why why I survived um, but I'm still I'm still open to offers on suggestions yeah yeah and, and so I, I was curious did this have any um impact like religious views did god do you believe do you i don't know if you i don't know anything about your religious beliefs but did this change your religious beliefs because you hear people who um for all intents and purposes you know if this were if we had no other data we would say that you died and you came back to life right because of the amount of time that oxygen um and so people who kind of go through that sometimes have an outer body experience or a religious experience anything like that from your perspective yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not religious in any way. Um, I would say maybe 50% of the messages, I still get messages every single day. This happens, you know, this we're talking nine years ago, this happened now. So 
uh, I still to this very day get messages every day from um, all sorts of people, but the vast majority are from um, people, you know, of, a, of faith who, who are, you know, try and offer me some kind of explanation. I'm not, I'm not one to sort of knock that. I don't, I don't know, you know, I've got no definitive answers, uh, you know, on that front, but um my my feeling it was is very much a scientific one that it was a, there are you know whilst we may not know exactly how and why um there is a scientific explanation for it um you know and the body is and the humans are, are remarkable remarkable things you know i'm i tell you right now i'm not a remarkable human being by you know in, in any sense to the world you know um mentally or physically and uh but it, you know it just goes to show that um the human body is capable of incredible things when put under stress and under you know uh, when it needs to survive so um yeah I, I, I there was no epiphany for me I, there was no uh, i don't um i don't feel that i like to think i had sort of a, a lust and zest for life before that and i you know tried to live each day as well as i could anyway but um uh, yeah, there's no, there's not been any, you know, big, big change in my life, strangely, which again sounds disappointing. I need to make something up for that bit as well. Well, we're, we're gonna, so when they do the action sequence of this film, we've got the documentary. Documentary, we'll work on an action sequence. You know, we'll have a Kraken down there, a Great White. We'll have a whole thing. You know, we'll have to. Yeah, there's we'll probably, gonna be a light. There's gonna be a light, isn't there? Yeah, it's gonna be a light above me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you have a, you have an AK-47 down there on the bottom. You know, it's, it's yeah. gonna be really well done. We'll get St Stallone or someone to play you. Um, what is remarkable? <laughs> though is you know the old adage of you know if you fall off the horse get on the horse again you, you still do this job but I don't know I, I maybe could understand okay listen this was a traumatic event I need to get back down there just to face the fears but I I would I mean this is Ryan speaking about Ryan I would be a I would imagine I'd have like nightmares or I'd be afraid if I got down there I might seize up or every time the you know, the alarm went off next time I might wig out. How did you get through that process? And we're nine years removed um, to be able to do this um, as, as a career. Yeah, yes, a, a good question. Again, it's, um, I'd love, love to put a brave face on it. I mean, um, I think in truth, I feel strangely and I felt strangely disassociated from what happened. You know, even when I watched the film, I watched the footage back, I still sort of wonder if he's going to make it, you know, it doesn't really, it never really seems like me. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember even thinking twice about going back and that, that wasn't through any sort of bravery. I, I was much younger then, of course, uh, and uh, maybe a little bit more naive. And I, I don't think I really grasped the, the magnitude maybe of what had happened. I was, I was, I'd been a diver for quite a long time at that point, but I was in the infancy of, my saturation diving career if you like and that's you know sort of a place where you you, you worked to get to and my main I remember my main concern being you know I'm not I'm going to lose my job here or I'm you know the concerns we all have I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage and things like that and um I, I don't remember particularly worrying about my my safety which again I don't remember uh, you know, I'm not saying that I have any bravery. It's just purely. I remember being very practical about things that I need to get. My, you know, there's a, if there's an if there's an opportunity to get back in the water, I need to take it, sort of thing. Um, in truth, when we went back, we sort of laughed and joked, and once we were back in the water, we went back to exactly the same place, strangely. And um, yeah, once you go back to work, I almost you forgot about it straight away. Really, you know, with a bit of a laugh and a joke, and got on with it. But if if, if in truth, you know, I've got two kids now and 
you know I'm, I'm sort of 10 years older almost and, and a bit wiser I hope and I, I suspect if it happened to me today uh, my reaction would be different you know whether it would be quite so gung-ho about going back and blase and, and naive about it I'm not, I'm not so sure you know um, I wouldn't say I'm brave by nature you know so it's uh, it was just that it was a practical thing which maybe sounds a bit silly to the to so, the audience oh, yeah. yeah yeah one more question just about about being down there we're going back um, was there any part of the umbilical that was stuck in the manifold that y'all had to go get out? Yeah, good question. No, no, it wasn't. Um, uh, it's, it's a pretty clean break. And in fact, uh, when Dave came down to, to grab me, that's the, he checked that because he, the, the last thing he wanted to do was pick me up and drag me halfway back to the bell, you know, under great strain and then find that my umbilical was caught down below. So they were, they were pretty careful about checking out with the ROV, the remotely operated vehicle and Dave himself, prior to bring me back so no but there is a section of of snapped umbilical somewhere out there that i've been trying to get my my, my hands on to put on my wall you know but <laughs> i haven't managed to track it down yet <laughs> okay so you mentioned a minute ago uh you have a website people reach out to you um that's obviously how how i got um with you and you also but you do more than just diving today you have other things going on obviously we talked about the documentary um and you do some public speaking as well i believe yeah, that's very kind of you to mention it, Ryan. Thank you. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. It sort of um, happened almost, evolved almost naturally. You know, people always want to hear the story quite a lot. And um, yeah, I start getting asked every now and again to sort of do do talks. And it's it's become a little bit more corporate these days. Yeah, so I do I do quite uh, quite a bit of that kind of thing these days. Um, go out and talk and tell people the story and related to the processes and the things that we, we, we learned that night um yeah so i've got a little website it's chrislemons.co.uk and um yeah i'm sort of very happy to come and speak to any organization and, and tell the story and, and the lessons we learned so yeah it's been it's been it's in, in a weird way it's been um what happened to me whilst it you know maybe seems traumatic for me it's been a very positive experience in my life it's um it's opened a lot of doors and uh given me a lot of experiences that i would perhaps wouldn't otherwise have had and um, you know, I'm not just speaking about me, the three of us were in the water that day. We often say that, you know, for us, it was a, a positive experience in terms of it's strangely given us more confidence in, you know, in what we do for a living and also, you know, in life in general, really, that um, we, we've been able to extricate ourselves from what seemed like a pretty hopeless, a hopeless situation. So, um, yeah. It's are, you, are you speaking internationally or is it only uh, in the UK or where are you doing these events at? Yeah, I just kind of do it everywhere now, really. I mean, it, obviously, uh, COVID has had a, a pretty uh, limiting effect on it recently. But, um, yeah, I think the States has just opened up as of November, I think we're allowed to come across. So um, I've got a couple of invites already. But, yeah, I tend to do it for, um, uh, you know, do things for sort of HSBC. And I've done a lot online over the over the last couple of years, um, work day, people like that. So, yeah, it's been um, it's been great, really. Yeah, so ha happy to travel, happy to do it online, yeah. Yeah, and what what is that like being a a public speaker? Because it's the opposite end of what you do the rest of the time, right? So yeah, part of your your job, you're like isolated, alone, strapped to this thing that's needed to survive, and then the other time you're out talking to a group full of people. It's it's like a one eighty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. Yeah, it didn't come naturally at the start. Definitely, it's not uh, it's not my uh, sort of my day job. That's for sure. Uh, but it's been it could be quite a nice release, really. I quite um, I think it's one of those things as uh, with public speaking, isn't it? Everybody uh, you either take to it or you don't. But I, I quite enjoy it really and um, thrive on it a bit. And I think I think I think perhaps the nature of what I do helps that a little bit. I like I like to think anyway that it's you know I don't 
uh um i don't know how much swearing is allowed in this part i was about to swear there but there was a, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I like to think it's um it's a fairly genuine presentation you know i don't feel i've got anything to prove i don't i'm not looking to to preach to anybody uh just to recount uh what is a you know an honest tale of of sort of human uh survival i guess and uh, and uh, an enormous number of lessons that we learned and the processes that we use at work which facilitated that sort of you know the fact that i'm still here today so it's a very human story at its heart you know it's uh i'm just a you know an average sort of boy if you like with the uh, with people uh, people around me that i love and, and wanted to come home to um but alongside that obviously the you know the change of command and the processes and the training and the drills that we do to which which allowed me to to come home to that sort of very normal life really so i hope it's a very human story and uh, i try and tell it that way and um yeah i don't, I don't i'm not too um i'm not too corporate in the way i, I am and do it i hope anyway <laughs> so we will link to that um your website um in the show notes so everyone can check it out and one final thing here let's close it out this way you mentioned the two other gentlemen uh, that are kind of the the real heroes, if you will. Of course, it was the whole crews working together, um, but those two were more uh, close. Um, what's your relationship like with them today? Because I I, I, would, I can see it being a deal where, uh, from their perspective, obviously they were very proud of what they did. They were very relieved that you lived. All of those emotions, but they probably felt like they did their job and probably want to move moved on. On your perspective, I could see it being torn where every time you see them, you just want to give them a big hug and say thank you. Like, how has that evolved and um, um, over these over the past decade? Well, yeah, that's that's extremely acute. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely spot on there. You couldn't have I couldn't describe it any better. Um, yeah, it's exactly that. It's a little bit awkward because I feel entirely that I I owe them an enormous debt of gratitude, one that I can never really uh <laughs> adequately express and, and and you're right they don't want to hear it either you know they dave in particular um he, i think he gets a bit of a bad rap on the film you know comes across as slightly emotionless which he isn't he's a very very lovely lovely man but he um yeah he, he really does feel that he was i think just doing his job and uh did what he needed to do and um Duncan and I have a slightly different relationship he was he was sort of a bit of a mentor to me at the start he's a bit more of a father figure if you like so we've got a you know pretty close and we we still do have a little squeeze every now and again I won't I won't lie to you you know um yeah but there's you know I don't like to make too much of it you know we didn't uh you know the soldiers who obviously suffer horrible traumas uh, far worse than, than we did and, and and you know and people in everyday life suffer horrible traumas you know which they which bond them together and you know to a lesser extent i think we do have a little bit of that there's always an un, a knowing glance i'm sure between us you know um of, a, of shared experience and shared trauma to some extent so uh, we're all still very close we still get on but yeah we, we just get on with our job and it's just something that happened to us i guess okay the documentary is last breath again on netflix um the website is um, it's a it's a UK website, so you got to keep that in mind. You just can't type in uh, yeah. your name. So we will link to that. that yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> yeah, we have some UK listeners for for those folks. It's it's normal, but for for us on this side of the pond, um, we will have to we will link to it in the show notes, which it is uh, um, right. It, it, so so we got there for you to, to access. And again, corporate speaking, check out the documentary. It's it's a, it's a crazy story. And in a crazy story in in one of those truth is stranger than fiction type deals, which is the system that never fails, fails. 
It's the Swedish. Like you call it the Swedish reset is what does it. Swedish they solution, yeah. yeah. I think I think, the, I think the Swedish the Swedish call it the Norwegian solution. By the way, yeah. <laughs> Listen, it was the life saving solution on that day. That's all that matters. But the old unplug it and plug it back in is what we call it in Texas. <laughs> so we've all uh, done it. We've all done it, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's fantastic stuff. It's an honor to talk to you and hear the story. It's, it's me and my wife watched this. A few weeks ago, and I thought, man, I, I, I got him on the podcast. Like, this is this is mm-hmm. crazy because that video of you laying on top of there, shaking, and it's on your website. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow, wow. It's so haunting, isn't it? It's haunting, it, yeah. it is something. So obviously, um, um, I know you in the documentary got got married. They said have kids. So congratulations on all that, and best of luck. Um, and if you, I, you know, with listen, I don't. Can I say best of luck with the diving stuff? Like you've been lucky. <laughs> So continued. <laughs> I've had it, yeah. Luck, maybe this is the right way to say it, right? I've had my share, but thanks anyway. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, it's been lovely. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, uh, and we'll be back next week.